0: You want to finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabitosa, Kenosha,
1: a of is in the house. Okay. Welcome to another episode of the New Look podcast, where we're going to be taking a new look, cyber primarily, but a lot of things. And uh, very lucky to be joined by a man who has probably had more influence on... Thinking about the cyber domain, uh, both in the, the private and public sector, than anyone I can think about in the last few years, Um el Peravish, thanks for joining us, my friend. Thanks for having me. I am uh, I like judging what people have in their background initially. Not that I've taken time to organize mine, but uh,
0: I, got did, Raven, get you, an eight, I did get an 8 out of 10 on Room Raider, So Is that right? I, I That's did. Stupid. Yeah. Wow. Well, you got Raven Rock, which is a great book. Yeah. All
1: sorts of cool coins. Uh, Yeah. Where's your challenge coin collections? I have no challenge. I mean, I have them somewhere from when I was in the military, but this is an ongoing debate uh, with my staff wants me to, like, get congressman challenge coins, but you have to pay a lot of money for them. And it seems Uh, like a a horrible waste of of office money. So I have none of my own challenge coins. uh, So. Sometimes I see veterans in my district and they're very disappointed that I don't have a coin to give them. But what are you going to do? Okay, Dimitri, who are you? Where
0: are you from? Where does this story begin? Well, I guess the very beginning begins in Russia. I was born in Moscow um, back in the Soviet Union days and um, immigrated when I was a kid with my parents and ended up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. How Uh, old were you when you immigrated? uh, I was 13 and... uh, I went to Chattanooga in high school there and then uh, ended up at Georgia Tech, uh, where I pursued uh, what ended up being the first degree that they ever gave um, in uh, what at the time was called information security. Now, of course, we call it cybersecurity. And um, that was sort of the beginning of my career in this field uh, over 20 years ago. Wow. Wait, so why did your parents uh, leave Russia? Why...
1: Uh, did you How did you wind up in Tennessee? Why Chattanooga? I've been to Chattanooga. I used to work for a member of Congress from Chattanooga. Yeah. Uh, so I have some
0: love for Tennessee, but how, how did that happen? So my dad was a nuclear physicist in Russia, um, working not on nuclear weapons, but on civilian nuclear reactors. And just by sheer luck, he wasn't sent to Chernobyl. A lot of his colleagues were. Uh, some of them came back with cancer and subsequently passed away. Uh, within months of coming back and uh, since then uh, sort of my my parents decided that uh, this regime was uh, at the time Soviet Union regime was not uh, great uh, to live in and uh, we need to get out of there of course to legally immigrate Um, um, took a long time so we didn't actually end up leaving until the Soviet Union fell apart Uh, but he got a job at TVA, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, Um, He wasn't doing nuclear work um, anymore because, um, as you know, the nuclear industry in the United States has uh, kind of gone belly up. uh, But he was still kind of working on energy stuff, and um, that's how we ended up in Chattanooga. I'll tell you this. I thought I knew English uh, before I got to Chattanooga, and uh, my first day in school, uh, I'm like, holy crap, I don't understand anyone here. (laughs) So it was an interesting experience learning Southern. That's funny. Um, Do you have... So
1: obviously your parents left the Soviet Union because they were troubled about the direction of the country. But do you as a child growing up in Moscow since you were 13, do you have fond memories of the city? I mean, I've never been. I mean, is it put aside sort of the political management of the country? I mean, what what do people need to know about Moscow as a city? And as you respond, I'm going to change my cameras because I'm noticing a delay on this one. So don't be uh, freaked out by that. This is a very
0: technical you know, technically savvy podcast. But yeah, right. so I have not been back to Russia uh, since since I left um, in, in the early 90s. And um, certainly from what I've seen, Moscow has changed a lot. Uh, the Moscow that I remember growing up there in the 80s was a very beautiful old city, 800 years old, uh, with a lot of great old architecture. I think a lot of that has changed because um, uh, they've been building sa- skyscrapers, casinos, and neon signs. So lot of Moscow from what I've seen now looks like Las Vegas, which I think is a shame because that was not the character of the city that I knew and grew up in. So uh, the Moscow that I remember is long gone.
1: Do you uh, still have an affinity for Russian literature, Russian movies? What's, uh, do you maintain a cultural connection to the motherland?
0: Uh, so, so n- not, not the present day Russia, but, um, um, certainly, the the old classical literature, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, absolutely. And uh, you know, one day I want to uh, um, teach my kids about that history and, and and the rich culture that Russia has. Are you are you teaching them Russian? Uh, I'm trying It's really hard. Uh, my wife doesn't speak, uh, and uh, it's hard to to keep that uh, uh, in in a household where only one parent is able to speak.
1: Okay, so you go to Georgia Institute of Technology uh, for undergrad. When did you kind of know that you had a facility for information security and cyber? Where did that sort of intellectual interest and ability
0: begin? Well, I'll tell you, it's an interesting story because when my dad got a job at TVA, he was doing interesting work in terms of energy distribution and how to, uh, this was in the era of deregulation and you can transfer power from one state to another much more easily. So he was working on efficient ways to to transfer power and um, uh, get it to regions that need it um, at at, um, low prices. But um, that wasn't very intellectually satisfying to himself. So he started looking and just on the side, learning about encryption, cryptography, just purely for the mathematical brilliance of it. Um, and uh, I had a little bit more of an entrepreneurial streak, and I said, well, why don't we create a company out of this? So I was still in high school, and uh, we started a company together uh, building encryption software, and uh, it it wasn't as huge of a success as CrowdStrike, but we did okay, and um, that sort of got me really fascinated by this field of uh, cybersecurity, um, where at the time was called information security, and what I realized early on is that the encryption stuff was great, and you can design really fail-safe encryption technologies that would make the data secure, but all of that would be for naught if someone stole your keys that you would use to encrypt your data. So at the end of the day, the most important thing was understanding that this was at the, uh, you know, ultimately a cat and mouse game. Someone's trying to break in and either steal valuable data, be that encryption keys or raw data, and uh, it was all about how do you thwart these adversaries, and that's what really, set me on a path of uh, being in this industry.
1: What is the key skill set, though, that you need as a young student and entrepreneur to be good at cryptography? Is it a facility with math? Is it a ability to synthesize across different domains? What is it? Because to me, it's like I was a guy who was good at reading and writing,
0: but I could never have done something like that. So encryption is hardcore math, uh, very advanced math these days. and uh, it's it's not for the faint of heart. So you were like a math whiz, was it fair to say? You' were well, good at- my, my dad was much more brilliant in that space, but I did okay because you're being modest.
1: Okay. So did you go directly to grad school at Georgia or after undergrad?
0: I did. So I, I got my um, uh, bachelor's in computer science with a focus on information security. And then, um, just as I was graduating to start a new program, uh, a master's program in information security, and I was the first graduate out of that program. And then what was your first job out of that program? So it was interesting. Uh, my first job was a startup um, that uh, was doing email security. and At the time, email security meant really encrypting data, making sure that um, you know large companies, Fortune 500 companies, uh, wouldn't have someone intercepting their emails. And when I joined that company, um, this little thing called spam was just on the horizon. Uh, it was a you know two to 3% of all email. It was really more of a nuisance. And I remember I was meeting with the CEO of the company. I said, what's your plan? What's your roadmap for the product? How to evolve it? And he said, well, you know, more and more people are asking us about spam, how to deal with it. So we're gonna spend the next quarter or two working on solution to that. And then we'll go back to encryption. And your job really is to figure out the spam thing. And needless to say, we started working on spam and we never stopped because the spam traffic took off just like that. Um, this was around 2003 when uh, botnets just emerged. So these, uh, for, the, for your viewers who don't know, these are machines, innocent machines, your grandma's machine that may have been infected and becomes um, uh, essentially it falls under the control of a criminal, uh, oftentimes in former uh, republics of the Soviet Union, and they can use that machine to send out spam, to steal data from that machine, use it to launch um, denial of service attacks, essentially huge traffic Um, uh, Why is
1: it always from a former
0: Soviet satellite? I'll I'll tell you that in a second. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow. Yeah, Yeah, no, but um, literally these botnets emerged and they started using them to send out spam and spam went from 5% of all email traffic to 95% of all email traffic almost overnight. And um, that also led me realize that it was really, really important to understand your adversary. A lot of these uh, guys that were doing, mostly guys, that were doing these activities uh, were in the former Soviet Union. I, of course, uh, understood Russian, so I was able to get into their forums that, that um, they used online to communicate about their latest techniques and trends and use that intelligence to help build better protection for our company. Um, and the reason, by the way, why um, a lot of them are in the former Soviet Union is actually pretty simple. It's not because, you know, uh, that region has a monopoly on, on crime or cyber crime. But what it does have is ability for you to operate with great impunity. Um, and what's been happening is that, of course, you had lots of criminals um, that, that that were getting into this field in the 90s uh, in the US and Europe and elsewhere, but they got arrested pretty quickly and learned their lesson. And you didn't survive uh, fairly long um, in, in those countries, um, Western countries, if you were cyber criminal. Law enforcement learned very quickly how to find you and ultimately prosecute you. But in Russia um, and Ukraine and, and other parts of the Soviet Union, that was not the case. Um, initially law enforcement paid little attention to them. And then when they did start paying attention, it was uh, really to give them a choice, go work for the government, uh, and Moonlight as uh, doing cybercrime on the side, or uh, you know, you'll know, you be sent to Siberia. And um, as a result, you really have the same situation develop as you did back in Sicily in the 1800s, where lack of law enforcement created these powerful mafia structures. Um, that would, you know, to this day, make it very, very difficult to dislodge. Now you have the same thing essentially happening in the Soviet Union in these organized criminal cyber criminal gangs. Do the cyber criminal gangs have like an
1: operational relationship with actual old school criminal gangs or are they just kind of doing their own thing?
0: There, There is some connections. Um, uh, uh, the the old school gangs, the ones that are doing your typical, you know, prostitution and Drug trafficking and the like uh, realize that there's money to be made in cyber, so there is some uh, links between the two. But usually, um, the the people that are going into um, cyber crime are more technically minded. They may not be able to go beat up uh, someone uh, and and ask for protection money, uh, but uh, they're able to do a lot of great damage online. Um. Okay. So you're at
1: this company. You're working on the spam problem. You're infiltrating you know, Russian chat rooms and all sorts of things. When does CrowdStrike enter the picture? Or when does the idea for CrowdStrike enter your head?
0: So, so, uh, by the way, the interesting thing about uh, me learning this early on, um, that attribution is super important. Actually understanding who is responsible for these things can give you intelligence to understand what they may be doing and sort of stay um, a step ahead of, of of the game, which was really critical once we get to CrowdStrike. But um, that, that company, Cypher Trust, uh, we got acquired a few times and ended up at a company called McAfee, which was largest, uh, one of the largest cybersecurity companies at the time. And I was running all of um, global threat research operations at that company. And in 2010, I get a call from this other little company called Google um, that uh, tells me that um, they, they tell me that they've been hacked. Um, and we started looking into it. We realized there were many other companies that were hacked and oh my God, it's actually coming from China. And it wasn't actually cybercrime. It looked like it was government sponsored. They were working uh, working to get access to Gmail accounts of dissidents um, in Tibet um, and, and others that uh, would be a major threat to the Chinese regime. And it was the first wake up call for me personally as well as the, the broader industry that you're not just dealing with some cyber criminal that's trying to send out spam or steal your credit card. Now you're dealing with military and intelligence services of global powers like China that are breaking into corporate networks to steal intellectual property, to access sensitive data in support of their regime's um, gains. And to address that threat, you needed a completely different mentality. The things you were doing to stop, you know, you know, a teenager in a basement somewhere would not work against, you know, the PLA, the the People's Liberation Army that has tens of thousands of people, billions of dollars in budgets, uh, very, very different threat actor. And that really gave me the idea that uh, we need to do something very different um, in response to the threat and led us ultimately to start CrowdStrike. Sorry,
1: I muted myself. After I've been spending the last few months making fun of my older colleagues for not knowing how to unmute and unmute themselves, Uh, Jeff Bezos had that issue uh, in his recent testimony. (laughs) I didn't see that part of it. Oh my gosh. Um, I I just can't imagine you watching these congressional testimonies on on tech issues, just shaking your head at home. Uh, We could we'll come back to that. Uh, So okay, so but what so what was the core? niche of CrowdStrike or
0: what was the sort of demand in the industry you were responding to? So it it really was a realization that no one was addressing this nation state threat, that uh, all these companies um, were getting hacked. I actually coined the phrase that many people have repeated since then, that there are only two types of companies, those that know that they've been hacked and those that don't yet know, but they've all been hacked. Um, And, um, uh, the demand was there, and no one was really addressing the threat from a perspective of let's build some unique technology, let's use intelligence to understand who the threat actors are, let's provide services to help companies rebuild and investigate these breaches. So that was the idea behind CrowdStrike that we started in 2011 and ultimately built into what is now the largest cybersecurity company on the planet. No big deal. Um, are you, but at the time,
1: I mean, I would imagine you had a sense because you were really hardcore in the industry since at least 2003, you've been studying your whole life. You had to have a sense that you were at the start, even back in 2003, of something huge, right? That you were, you know, you're, you're like two decades ahead of the curve. Now everybody has at least an awareness that cybersecurity is important,
0: but what was your? I mean, that must have been a pretty exciting feeling at the time. It was. Uh, I knew that uh, this was this was going to be a big industry, but at the time no one was even thinking about nation states. It was all about how do you stop the criminal actors, how do you stop the hackers that hack into your website and deface it and put up some stupid message on it. And it was a big enough problem that we knew that there was a lot of money to be made here, that there was a great cause in helping to protect companies and, and uh, other organizations and governments uh, from these types of attacks. It took on a totally different meaning though uh, when we started CrowdStrike, because now it felt like you were defending democracy itself from the Chinese Communist Party, from the Russians, from the Iranians, the North Koreans, all the folks that are trying to do our nation harm. And um, that uh, was uh, a much bigger cause than just defending against some criminals. Out of curiosity, and
1: I I wanna tie this to something I hope we talk about later. In the early stages of CrowdStrike, I mean, you're taking this massive risk, you know, leaving the Death Star of McAfee and starting your own rebel alliance. so that's that's a risk. But did you? What were your interactions with the federal government uh, as you tried to put this uh, company together? Was the government ever one of your clients? Did you get any funding from a DARPA-like entity?
0: We didn't. I mean, we we were fortunate enough that we were able to raise 25 million dollars literally off a of PowerPoint deck. Uh, we made 25 slides, so it was about a million per slide. The joke was that we should have made more slides. Uh, but we didn't need government funding. Uh, We actually didn't have many government contracts initially, and we actually stayed away from that because, uh, as you well know, dealing with the government is so hard. Uh, It takes forever, And, and the thing that's always frustrating for me with the government is that in the commercial sector, you know who's in charge, You know the one person that will tell you yes or no. In the government, there's a million people that can say no, and it's really hard to find the person that actually can say yes. Uh, so we didn't start really looking at the government business until uh, till it was much later and we actually could afford to spend, you know, two years working on a single contract. Um, when you're a startup, you can't take necessarily those risks and, and it's much easier to work in the commercial space. But just in having, you know, I've had connections with government officials, um, going back to the Bush administration and, and then later as well, um, um, uh, people, great people like General Alexander, who was running NSA at the time. Um, They, uh, you know, in the classified space, uh, you know, I had a security clearance, they were telling me um, what they were seeing and I was sharing with them what I was seeing in the unclassified space. And what was always frustrating to me is that the government knew what China was doing, that they were hacking into all these companies and they knew it for many years. Uh, But it was all classified. No one would mention the words China and cyber within the same sentence. And I was really the first one that started publicizing what I was seeing in the unclassified world just working with our clients and doing attribution on what was taking place. And it was frustrating to me that the government for years would not acknowledge uh, that this was going on. I remember, uh, I think it was James um, uh, Carney, the, the press secretary at the time, was literally asked after one of my reports at the White House podium to comment on it. Uh, how come you know, Dimitri here is writing reports on what China is doing and hacking into all these industries and the government has no response? And, and you know, he, he didn't have a comment. Uh, and, and at the time, the thinking in the government was, oh, my God, if we just tell the world that we know that China's hacking, we'll lose our sources and methods. That was, of course, nonsense. And ultimately, they got over it. And now the policy under the Trump administration, which I think is, is absolutely correct, is to do attribution, to do it rapidly, uh, to do it with confidence, to do it with allies. And we're not losing sources and methods. We're still able to do it very effectively. And um, that was ultimately the right decision. That's a great transition to maybe help my uh, constituents
1: in northeast Wisconsin, a lot of whom, by the way, are getting hacked and are victims of ransomware, maybe help them understand the broader threat landscape. Um, and ma- maybe we'll go from sort of what you view as the biggest threat, which I assume is China, and then kind of take us take us on a little tour through the rest of the, the threat landscape. And as we talk about China, what would be helpful, and I struggle with this in a lot of what I do, is just to connect connect the China threat to the concerns of kind of everyday Americans
0: and and people in Northeast Wisconsin and why we should all care about this stuff? Absolutely. So, broader picture, there are three types of adversaries that we face in cyberspace. You have the nation states, and that actually has not changed in the last 20 years. The, 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 The folks that people cared about 20 years ago, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, still the same problem set that we care about today. And my prediction is will be the same problems that we'll care about 10 years from now. The reality is um, that there are lots of nation states that have cyber capability, but I just don't go to bed worrying at night about what Singapore may do to the United States for various very, very obvious reasons. Um, as an ally, they wouldn't have interest in doing so. So um, there is an absolutely nexus between geopolitical struggles that we face with these four countries um, that now spill over into the cyber domain. But they operate very, very differently. China, I would argue, is the long-term threat, um, and they're using cyber, of course, to achieve global dominance, um, become a great power uh, by stealing intellectual property across literally every single industry that we have, both technology, um, agriculture, um, industrial, manufacturing, you name it. And they're giving it to their domestic sector to help them bypass years and billions of dollars in R&D so that they can manufacture it cheaper and then go out out into the the world and undercut us on price. And you now see them uh, establishing national champions like Huawei um, that have grown to be massive behemoths um, and eclipsing anything um, in their particular space that uh, Western companies are able to do. In fact, driving American companies out of that sector altogether. Um, And we're now seeing that in other places like solar panels, for example, Lots of um, solar manufacturers in this country have gone out of business because the Chinese have stolen that intellectual property and then undercut us on price and made, made it um, impossible for, for us to do business. Um, and um, unfortunately, we're seeing that in more and more industries. And unless we address it now, um, which I know we're trying to do with a 301 regulation that the U.S. trade representative put out, which resulted in tariffs that I know are painful um, to, to lots of folks, including in the Midwest, but really, they're, they're, I believe, a necessary uh, mechanism to make China pay for these activities and hopefully, at the end of the day, convince them that this is not worth it. Um, Russia, of course, you know, we know is engaged in uh, all kinds of um, muckracking in, in terms of trying to uh, uh, influence elections around the world. Um, they do a little bit of economic espionage uh, in cyber, but it's limited really to their oil industry and their financial sector. Uh, particularly since the sanctions that were put in place in 2014. So, they don't have the wide um, uh, spread of domestic industry that could really leverage that intellectual property. So, they're not doing a whole lot of it. And then the Iranians are doing all kinds of destructive attacks. They really pioneered those uh, originally in their um, um, uh, region against Saudi Arabia and then later expanding it to the United States as well. And they view cyber as an asymmetric tool that, should we get into a hot conflict with them, They want to use cyber to try to hurt us and our industry and um, and and, uh, achieve as much impact as possible because obviously they can't reach us easily uh, through kinetic means Um, and north korea very similar but they're also in addition to that using cyber to finance the regime so obviously we have very strong sanctions put on the north koreans because of the nuclear and missile program and they're using cybercrime. they are actually breaking into banks stealing money They're breaking into cryptocurrency exchanges, stealing cryptocurrency to finance the regime. Uh, In a lot of ways, they're laundering it through through banks in Macau uh, and and other parts of China in order to uh, make sure that the regime has uh, funds to continue building their nuclear program. So that's the nation state threat. Then we've talked about the cyber criminals that are still out there and, um, um, you know, trying to monetize um, their cyber operations. And then you have hacktivists, uh, people that have an ideological motivation to conduct um, attacks. Mostly, um, they're doing things like uh, breaking into um, companies and and stealing their email archives and dumping it for the world to see or defacing websites. Uh, But now, increasingly, you have terrorists, um, groups like ISIS uh, and al-Qaeda that have used both cybercrime to finance their terrorist activities, uh, al-Qaeda in particular. But uh, as we've seen with ISIS, using it very effectively to spread their gruesome videos and um, also um, do, doing hacks to um, identify individuals that um, they may want to target um, and use it for counterintelligence purposes. So increasingly, terrorist groups are becoming very sophisticated at this. So we won't have time to dig into each of
1: those threats specifically. So I'd like to just go deep on China, if that's OK. And as a starting point, I mean, how do you think the United States stacks up? presently against China in cyber? What are our own strengths and weaknesses, or even
0: our understanding of the Chinese cyber threat? So if you were to rank our capabilities, and not just against China, but Russia, Iran, North Korea, we're head and shoulders above them. The capabilities that the NSA has, the CIA, the Cyber Command are just the best out there. Um, And uh, people, you know, taxpayers should be proud of the capabilities that we've developed. But here's the issue. We don't use them, except in very rare circumstances. So when you look at China, um, yeah, they may be sloppy. uh, They may not be super sophisticated in a lot of their operations, but they do them and they achieve effects. And we are constraining ourselves and sitting back and saying, well, cyber is this tool that we never want to use unless, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, in some ways people are thinking about it as almost a nuclear weapon, which I don't think it is. Um, Certainly not in terms of effects that it can achieve and um, um, uh, for a long time uh, it required literally white house approval to conduct any major cyber operation uh, with effects Um, and uh, of course as you can imagine bureaucracies like that don't uh, uh, make it easy to to conduct an operation so what was most ridiculous to me at the time was that it was literally easier for us to conduct drone strikes in syria let's say and kill people than it was to launch a cyber attack against their computers uh, makes zero sense. Uh, the Trump administration a couple of years ago relaxed a lot of those rules. So the rules of engagements have gotten a lot better. I think there's more work that can be done there. But we need to fundamentally ask ourselves, we're sitting on all this great capability. Why are we not using it to actually achieve some deterrence and impact adversaries?
1: I think even with the changes that we made in a couple NDAAs ago, making cyber surveillance and reconnaissance of persistent military activity, NSPM 13 and things like that. You still think so? The, the rules of engagement have gotten a little bit better, mm-hmm. devolved to, to lower levels, but it's still not fast enough that, you know, with the speed and agility, to use your phrase that you've imbued in my head for time immemorial, uh, that you need to actually restore
0: some semblance of deterrence in cyber. That's right. That's one problem. The other problem is actually more structural. So currently, we still have cyber commanders, you know, and NSA. Uh, under one roof, uh, under General Nakasone, operating both of them. And um, I think uh, it made sense for a long time to keep them together because when Cyber Command was stood up about 10 years ago, it was too immature to act on its own and it needed support of NSA. I think the time has come to decouple those. And the big issue I see today is that by having them together, there is a tremendous amount of tension between the two organizations because NSA, of course, is out there trying to collect intelligence and they don't wanna introduce any effects into the networks that they're sitting on, because if they do so, they may get caught, they may get thrown out, then they'll stop collecting. Their job is to keep on listening. The job of Cyber Command is, of course, to inflict pain on the adversary. And those are in tremendous conflict with each other. It's the you know, combat versus intelligence debate. And unfortunately, it constrains um, operations that Cyber Command is able to do. Obviously, if you go to General Nekasoni, he can resolve it, but not everything can go to a four-star general for obvious reasons. And I think it's really uh, overdue for us to decouple the two organizations.
1: Uh, Just while we're on the the issue of decoupling, you talked a little bit about um, the Chinese Communist Party subsidizing their national champions in general, but Huawei in particular. What is your view on sort of the 5G debate? And I mean, I think it's caught up in this broader debate, which is heated up post-coronavirus as to To what extent do we need an industrial policy in the United States so that we have some form of selective technological decoupling from China?
0: So I I believe that uh, the work that the administration has done on Huawei should be uh, really commended because um, we absolutely should not be letting Huawei into our networks or the networks of our allies. And uh, to me, this is not an issue with Huawei, the company. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of concerns about what Huawei may be doing themselves, But fundamentally, if it's Huawei, if it's ZTE, or if it's ABC Corp, it doesn't matter. What matters is the country that that company is operating in, which is China. And the fact that any company in China will not be able to tell the government no if the government shows up on their doorstep and asks them for a favor. And that is the fundamental issue that we face with any company operating in China that is doing um, work in, in something as sensitive as telecommunications. The analogy I often use is we don't buy tanks or aircraft carriers from China, and will never will, hopefully, for very, very obvious reasons that that would not be a secure way to procure military equipment. So why would we buy the digital equivalents of that? So uh, to me, the focus on Huawei, the company is almost misguided because it's China that's actually the problem. And um, you know the work particularly in the last couple of months has been really phenomenal because uh, by putting in place sanctions on Huawei's ability to procure our Um, uh, procure semiconductor chips needed uh, for their equipment, we've basically um, locked them out of major markets. The UK just reversed themselves. They were going to go and uh, use Huawei equipment. Uh, Literally about a month ago, the prime minister, Boris Johnson, said, no, we're not going to do it. French just followed suit. We'll see what the Germans do. But now increasingly people are realizing that not only is it a security issue, but you may not be able to even procure equipment for Huawei because without access to chips, they won't be able to ship you a box that actually works. Um, do you, okay. So, but we still, I,
1: I feel like we've, we confront this problem always in the 5g debate where we've gotten really good on the defensive side and our allies are coming around to our view Well, the Aussies were ahead of us on it. Um, Germans still kind of on the fence, but you know, when prime minister Johnson comes and says, well, okay, but what's the non Huawei alternative from the West? And I get it. We have no and Erickson, but Huawei is like it's like 5G in a box, right? I don't have to deal with 10 different companies and our Western companies can't compete on price. So is there an offensive side to this game that you think we haven't been playing yet? And I'm struggling with this myself.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You you know, you mentioned industrial policy. I like to think of it as industrial strategy. The private sector is really, really good at innovation. They should be um, enabled to do innovation and the government, I believe, should mostly stay out of it. But in certain sectors, particularly when you have to do very basic research that is extremely expensive, that's the area where the government can actually facilitate uh, um, the the work with funding. If you think about um, um, the origins of our industrial policy after World War II, we wouldn't have a semiconductor industry today if it weren't for government funding. We wouldn't have GPS, we wouldn't have the internet uh, that we're using to communicate today without government stepping in and providing Uh, funds um, that would spur up this industry. And I think that's really, really important to do that basic research. And once you've done it, once you've built the basic protocols that uh, enable the internet, then you can let the private sector unleash itself and and do all kinds of innovation and build applications on top of it. But um, in areas like semiconductors in which we're starting to lose our edge, um, Intel, um, as you may have seen, is considering outsourcing their fab manufacturing um, to other um, uh, countries, particularly Taiwan. Um, That's unacceptable Uh, for us to lose our ability to manufacture semiconductors would prevent us from a national security perspective from being able to enforce the types of sanctions that we just did on Huawei, as an example. So the CHIPS Act, that is a bipartisan um, effort in Congress, um, uh, bicameral, is really great on that front. And then uh, investments in things like AI, quantum computing, um, and the like is also really, really important. And the government spends a lot of money uh, today, it's uh, you know we pretend we don't have industrial policy. We do. Uh, it's just uh, not really focused, and tons of money being spent, perhaps not on the most important things. And I want to commend you on your leadership with the Endless Frontiers Act that you sponsored, um, also bicameral and bipartisan. Um, that that's going a long way to to supporting that with hundred billion dollars in funding. Um, I think we need more of that. Well, I appreciate
1: that. Um... You know, certainly we we kind of took a look at historically, while the federal government is spending a lot of money, our, our investment in R and D has gone down since the old Cold War. My own view is we're at the beginning of a, a new Cold War, as imperfect as that analogy is. Um, but it's gonna require some some more investment than, than we're making right now. But I, I I guess particularly in cyber, I mean, even all the money in the world kind of can't solve a the human problem, right? Like how much should we think about this as just in order to be successful in in cyber, the federal government needs to harness the talent of the best and brightest, right? Like the you know the 14 year old Dmitry Alperovitch, you know, in uh, Tennessee today. What it, I think there's been a lot of concern that with Google Project Maven, uh, that the sort of the private sector and the talent we need in the private sector is not willing to work with the federal government. What is the picture? as you see it in terms of private sector talent and, you know, uh, federal government uh, cyber
0: agencies? Well, I'm not super concerned about it because for every Project Maven and Google decision, there's literally a thousand others um, that exist that um, where companies are working closely with the federal government. You notice that Amazon, Microsoft have not backed away from their projects with uh, DOD and others. Um, and um, there's numerous uh, companies in Silicon Valley that are, that are working closely with the government on many fronts. So I think I think Google was an aberration in that respect and, and we'll see what ultimately comes of it. I know they've recently hired a lot of people uh, from the government um, that want to rebuild those relationships and, and hopefully um, um, that will work out. So um, I do think that uh, we can always improve our relationships with Silicon Valley. Um, the biggest impediment to me is actually the encryption debate um, that's taking place right now. It's sort of the uh, I remember the crypto wars of the 90s when uh, the Clinton administration at the time was trying to ban encryption, and the industry rose up and said, "No, this will impede the progress of building a secure internet that can be used for e-commerce and all the wonderful things we have now." We sort of have the reemergence of that now uh, with um, um, I think legitimate concerns that people are raising with regards to child pornography and pedophiles that are are being able to use the internet to harm kids um, and and terrorists uh, using it for communications. But um, we need to find a balance between being able to use this technology for good and enabling law enforcement to use it um, to track down terrorists and and, and pedophiles. And um, I don't think we've found it yet.
1: Yeah. Well, we sort of uh, briefly referenced the recent congressional hearings with big tech. And it's interesting. There seems to be a convergence on the far left and the far right uh, of demonizing big tech, and I know it's an easy target, but um, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to need to have a productive relationship with these companies to have a chance of of beating the commies. Um, I wonder. I mean, do you have a view on some of these hot button debates, Section 230, and things like that? I mean, it's a t- it's a tough thing uh, to to kind of come up with a a perfect
0: goldilocks solution. I mean, and 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 the debate right now around TikTok, I think, makes it very very clear mm. that. Um, we are going to have big tech tech, whether people like it or not. The question is, do you want big tech in America or do you want big tech in China? Yeah. And, um, uh, in America we can regulate them and, you know, we, we should be pursuing some of these companies for monopolistic behavior, uh, when they violate the law, uh, we should be regulating them, uh, um, uh, you know, when, when they cross the line, but at the end of the day, I'd rather have American big companies than Chinese ones. Uh, because I guarantee you, the Chinese ones uh, that do the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party are going to be way more harmful to our democracy um, and the future of this republic.
1: Well, you were very helpful in terms of the future of our democracy when we were debating a lot of election security uh, reforms within the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Uh, you were one of our outside red team analysts, and uh, you really were—you were helpful in pushing back on a lot of our initial drafts, Um, maybe talk about your overall um, view of election security and um, kind of how we can pursue a dual track of kind of top down funding and bottom up funding with some of the nonprofits that are in the space.
0: So uh, I'll tell you the election security is literally the hardest issue you can have in cybersecurity. And uh, we as cybersecurity experts simply don't know how to make it safe without using paper. So the safest thing we can do, ironically, I say this as a tech guy, is not to use technology, but making sure that even if you use a touchscreen machine to to cast your ballot, there's a printout record in every precinct and every county that can be hand counted, if need be, to assure that we have the correct votes. That's the most important thing. A lot has been done, thanks to um, your efforts and the Solarium Commission's efforts and congressional funding. To ensure that most jurisdictions in the United States in this coming election cycle will have a paper record, either a ballot that gets um, um, uh, filled out uh, by hand or or one that gets printed out from a machine and can be verified. However, um, there's still, unfortunately, uh, seven states um, that have precincts or even in some cases statewide uh, do not have uh, paper ballot uh, records um, in the machines that they use. Um, And that's uh, really. Um, uh, unacceptable, Um, it's probably at this point too late to change that for 2020, but we should not have another election um, come 2022 where that is the case. Um, So um, more more work needs to be done there, specifically in those states. Wisconsin, I'm I'm glad to say, um, is not one of those and um, uh, is is safe. Um, However, um, there is other um, parts of the election ecosystem that are very vulnerable. The voting registration databases in particular, we have seen the Russians target them in 2016. They didn't modify them as far as we can tell, but they were able to access some of those databases. Imagine a ransomware attack the day before the election on some of those systems that can cause havoc at the polls um, on election day because people can't verify whether you're you're a registered voter or not. Um, Those types of things concern me a great deal. And um, the challenge, of course, that we face in in our constitutional system is that elections are conducted by states and municipalities, not by the federal government. So the federal government actually has very little control um, and and influence over the way that things are being conducted. Congress can allocate funding, but beyond that, it's really hard um, to to do more. Uh, CISA, which is a cybersecurity agency led by a great guy named Chris Krebs, Um, is doing a lot to try to work with states on a volunteer basis to scan their systems, uh, election systems, and try to make sure they're secure. Uh, But again, they don't have the authority to to build that security in. Uh, A lot of these municipalities um, are their own constitutional uh, officers. Uh, When I started digging into this problem in 2016 and since then, I was shocked because I assumed secretaries of state at least had power over elections. And I found out in many states that's not the case. You know, some local election officials that are own constitutional officer that can decide what they're going to do and whether they're going to listen to the secretary of state. So it's such a complicated issue with a patchwork of laws throughout the country that makes it very, very difficult to, to make it safe. Well, I think that's
1: also the flaw in in thinking you can just have the federal government provide billions of dollars earmarked for cybersecurity to the states because it's almost entirely dependent on who the people are at the state level. Who are in charge of the issue right
0: and as you lay out some states are, are better than others yeah and fr- frankly you know the co- congress has traditionally allocated money in a u- uniform fashion that states get money allocated based on population numbers or what have you and that's actually not the way we should be doing it because it should be need-based you know if you've got a um, a state like texas that has almost no paper ballot machines well they need to have money to make make sure that we can replace those machines and, and have a safe election whereas other states Already far ahead and don't need as much. What do you think is the 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 most plausible yet
1: most uh, troubling election meddling scenario? Uh, is it a is it a Russia or a China targeting that one swing district and creating disinformation? Is it just trolls on social media saying the polling site is closed? What change
0: votes? I'm not extremely concerned about. I think it's really really hard to do and do it at scale where it actually impacts things. What I'm most concerned about, and this doesn't even have to be a nation state, it can be a criminal group that launches a ransomware attack on some of those precincts um, where you don't have a paper record um, and votes are actually lost, right? People go in, cast their votes and they're gone. And imagine the chaos that that will cause and, and the unrest potentially, uh, particularly if if it's the election is close enough where it can impact things. And by the way, we we spent so much time focusing on the presidential election. I know it's important, but as you well know, there's congressional races, there's senatorial races, there's local races. So those uh, races are actually a lot easier to influence than presidential races because the scale is much smaller. And I, I have a lot of concerns about that. How about your school board, right? I
1: mean, that affects every parent in, in, you know, your, your district. That election is incredibly important. Um, but do you think with with blockchain technology, we could ever get to a point? I think there's certain cities in Denver or, or or like villages outside of Denver that are doing blockchain enabled mobile voting. Is there ever a point
0: we could get to where it's secure enough? No. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe one day we are not even close to that. And, you know, folks that have looked at this um, in academia and, and in industry uh, very, very closely have not found any proposals that gives them comfort that we can do this safely and anonymously. You know, if you remove the secret ballot part of our elections, we can absolutely do it securely. But of course, that that's a fundamental uh, uh, tenet of our of our democratic system. So to do it anonymously and securely, we don't know how to do it. Well, there you
1: have it. The uh, the tech. Wiz is calling for a a low tech or non tech solution to election security. This is the Battlestar Galactica approach to election security. The nerds <laughs> will get that reference. You you can't hack paper. That's right. not yet, at least. <laughs> Um, uh, just quickly on um before we get into some more fun stuff uh, at the end here, um, on basic cyber hygiene, right? If you were gonna talk every small business in Northeast Wisconsin or high schoolers who are putting out their whole lives online, do you have sort of a core set of just recommendations for basic cyber hygiene?
0: Yeah, I do. And, and it's uh, three things that everyone should be doing. Uh, one, the, the the best thing you can do for cybersecurity is also the cheapest. And that is to use uh, what's known as a password manager program. There are a bunch of them that are free or cost maybe $10 or so. Um, everyone should should have one because what it enables you to do is to create a different password for every application or every app website that you use. It'll be a randomly generated password that you don't have to remember at all. Um, it will be saved in your password manager application. And the only thing you'll need to remember is the one key that unlocks the password manager. That's it. And that way, um, a lot of people are getting hacked, by the way, uh, not because they don't have strong passwords, but because they reuse passwords. So they go in and they enter a password on one website, that website gets hacked, that password gets stolen, and then the criminals will try to log in into your bank account and other sites where you use the same password. Don't do that, use random passwords that are automatically generated by these programs. And um, uh, that's literally one of the best and and most cost-effective things you can do either as an individual or as a business. Um, Second, uh, be paranoid. Uh, you know, on the internet, uh, uh, even a dog can pretend to be a human as, as the old joke goes. And if something looks too good to be true, an email that comes in, uh, from, you know, the Nigerian prince that, uh, uh, wants to give you a lot of money. If you just wire, uh, some to his bank account first, uh, chances are, it's not true. Um, well, actually it's definitely not true. Um, and don't click on attachments from people you don't know, um, or attachments that kind of look weird. That's a lot of the ways that businesses get um, get compromised these days. And then, when it comes to kids in particular, my advice to parents and and um, teenagers is um, think hard about anything you post online because once it's there, it's there forever, and you cannot do it. And I worry about you know the the politicians that um, uh, you know uh, are growing up as little kids right now and what the world is going to be like uh, for them when they decide to run for Congress like you did in 30 years and things that they wrote in fifth grade on Facebook or TikTok or some other platform is suddenly used as part of that campaign. Uh, It's unfair, but it will be out there. So um, to the extent that parents can limit their kids' um, uh, access to these things and and monitor closely what they post, um, I think that's super important.
1: I've got a great fix to this that I came up with the other day.
0: Because I've been going
1: around to to high schoolers in my district telling them to get offline. Because the best thing I ever did was de- delete my Facebook account the second year Facebook existed when I was a senior in high school. Or right after I, uh, college, sorry. Um, so I just got, I got like in the nick of time. Um, my 20s don't exist online. Um, wh- I, I want to tie the voting age to your ability to request uh, online amnesty. So... So at 18, you can decide to to exercise your ability to vote, and you get everything you did prior to that online goes into a magic amnesty box that you're going to invent, Dimitri. <laughs> but you could also delay it and vote at 25, and then everything goes into an amnesty box and disappears, or wait forever and do whatever you want online, but then you can't vote. So that's my half-baked <laughs> idea.
0: Yeah, it's a great idea. The only problem with it is that the Chinese are going to steal that amnesty box,
1: Oh, that's a good point. All right. Well, I'll have to evolve this a little bit more. Um, uh, okay. So what's, okay. You're, you're now uh, out of CrowdStrike. Uh, what's the next um, project here? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Silverado and what you're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah. So I left CrowdStrike um, really to focus on nonprofit efforts. And, and I see as sort of the next CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike obviously was a commercial endeavor, um, where we, we focused on trying to solve some of these hard problems with technology and intelligence. Now I'm focusing on the third pillar, which is policy, um, where I think we need to make a lot more progress. And uh, particularly when it comes to uh, issues like great power competition, especially vis-a-vis China, I think that is the issue of the century. If we don't get it right, um, the world that our kids and grandkids will live in, uh, we will not recognize and we will not like. So um, we need to focus on that. We only need to focus on cybersecurity, um, as we've just talked about and, and, and extend the great work that you have done on, with the Solarium Commission. Um, international trade is another big area of focus for us um, where we need to find ways that um, we can have free trade, but um, trade that is equitable. And the reality is that uh, we talked mostly about China in the context of cyber, but the things that they've done in the trade arena Uh, have uh, been atrocious as well. They've literally told our negotiators to their face that uh, we will steal from your industries and you can sue us in WTO and by the time that lawsuit will make its way to the end, your industry will be gone. Um, They've literally blatantly acknowledged that. Um, That is um, unacceptable and we need to correct um, uh, those policies and and, and, uh, focus on economic and ecological security as well. So those are the things we wanna work on uh, with the Silverado Policy Accelerator that I started. And um, really the idea behind it is that there's a lot of great folks that have ideas in this town, a lot of think tanks, academics, congresspeople, uh, but few are working on implementation issues. And um, the ideas we've talked about this in the past, uh, when when people from think tanks come to you, um, they have great ideas, but they're too high level to do anything with. So we wanna focus on how do you actually get things done Um, You know, if if the idea is that government should do X, Y and Z, what does that actually mean? Which agencies do they have the authority? Do they have the budgets? Who else should be supporting them? Is it congressional action? Is it executive branch um, action? Uh, We want to take essentially a venture capitalist approach to ideas where we want to invest into great ideas and and take them to fruition where they can be implemented by government agencies. Well, I think there's a huge gap that
1: you could potentially fill with that, because You know, my observation, it's nothing against the think tanks. It's just this old model where they, you know, they'll they'll write a a fifty page report on great power competition with a bunch of acronyms like GPC. Um, and then like the recommendation section will be two pages and it will all be uh you know, the federal government needs a, a comprehensive strategy for XYZ. And it's just there's not a lot of meat on the bones. And then the second mistake I think a lot of think tanks make is They think that just by virtue of the brilliance of the pros of the report, all of a sudden legislators are going to like make it happen. And they misunderstand that to get anything done in Congress, you have to cobble together a weird coalition of people and you have to repeatedly just
0: like run into a brick wall every day. And so uh, figure out the right incentives. One of the things that I'm passionate about, we talked a lot about it and you got some great recommendations in in the Solarium Commission about this, that we need to improve the security of the federal government. And I believe that that means that we really need to centralize the security apparatus of the federal government, probably within CISA, the cybersecurity agency that already exists. Um, And the reality is that most agencies out there, Bureau of Land Management, they will never be good at cyber, but they're doing some really important work. And uh, we need to figure out how do we move towards that model. Now, you know, we have to appreciate that it's hard to take existing authorities and budgets from agencies and give it to someone else. A lot of entrenched interests within the government and in Congress around that. But can we create incentives where perhaps an agency will voluntarily use the services provided by CISA in exchange for um, reduced regulations that they have to do around FISMA compliance and other things that they really hate doing? Um, and you can create these incentives where they will say, you know what, I want to get rid of this headache. I'd rather outsource it to CISA and let them let them deal with it. Um, those are the types of things that we need to consider. Not just you know government should do X, Y, and Z, but how do you actually get it done practically and um, uh, working around the different entrenched interests. But we want to work with you and others uh, in Congress and the executive branch on a bipartisan basis because a lot of these solutions are not partisan. All of us, I think, now in Congress uh, appreciate that China is a major threat. We need to confront it. Uh, everyone I know cares about cybersecurity. Um, these are not super political issues, and I think we can find common ground, just as you did with Senator King uh, when you chaired this alarm Commission.
1: Yeah, it was funny. There were times at which King... You know, who's an independent, and you know, I'm the evil Republican hawk, allegedly, would be making way more hawkish arguments than me, and I'd be like, wait, I thought I was supposed to be <laughs> the Republican here. Um, but uh, I, think, I think you're onto something, um, and it is totally a bipartisan space. I just would add, uh, if you can figure out how to improve the cybersecurity of, of members of Congress, too, you would do the nation a big service. Because it, it is a weird thing where constitutionally every member of Congress, regardless of their ethical background, their personal background, gets a clearance when they become a member. And then they get cursory training at best on how to handle classified information. So it's a huge fist target, uh, foreign intelligence surveillance uh, threats um, that we, I think, are ignoring right now. So just add that to your your issue wow. set there, Demetri. Um, okay, let's talk about some fun stuff with the, the five minutes we have left. Uh, has there ever been a good movie about cyber... Threats or there was that Black Hat Michael Mann movie. I never saw that, actually.
0: That awful. So, the, really? the, you know, the ones that uh, folks in the industry really love are actually the old um, 80s uh, War Games movie, if you recall, with Matthew Broderick uh, hacking into NORAD uh, that I know uh, uh, had a lot of influence on many people that have uh, gone into great careers in cybersecurity. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think this is something that... Um, we, we need to really fix. Um, Hollywood uh, does not have a good portrayal of cyber. Um, they try to um, um, <laughs> dramatize it too much where it becomes just nonsensical. And um, real world, I actually think is, is incredibly interesting and you could get do a great drama on cyber um, that will be captivating to, to people, but um, we just haven't done it yet. Um, and, and by the way, uh, one of the shows that I really love, um, not just because I was born in Russia, but um, I just think it's an incredible drama series called The Americans, I don't know if you've seen it, Uh, but it's about, you know, uh, 80s period where uh, you had these KGB officers that were here illegally and um, were doing espionage. But it was an incredibly accurate portrayal of espionage um, with tradecraft and um, how oftentimes it's a boring profession where you're sitting around doing nothing and then suddenly there's moments of great exhilaration and they made it into an incredibly interesting show despite the fact that they kept this espionage piece very, very realistic and not sort of James Bond caricature. And I think you can do the same in cyber. I, uh, I
1: wonder if some of Hollywood's reticence on this is not just ignorance about the nuances of cyber, but a, an unwillingness to anger China. Um, in some of the
0: storylines. I don't know, maybe that's unfair. I just had a conversation with uh, someone that, um, actually uh, he wrote an op-ed piece in the Foreign Affairs about this, that Hollywood is running out of uh, villains. Uh, It's not just China. China is one of the biggest problems. Um, They don't want to offend them because of the huge market that it has, but because of the things that both the Russians and the North Koreans and the Iranians have done in targeting networks, and North Korea famously hacking to Sony Pictures, when they released that movie about the assassination of, of Kim Jong-un. Now, uh, Hollywood uh, producers do not want to offend any of these countries and do not want to have villains from those countries. It, it is quite incredible that we are self-censoring uh, ourselves in Hollywood because we're afraid of China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So instead,
1: the villain just becomes America and just bash how terrible of a country this is constantly. Out uh, of curiosity, did you watch uh, the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO?
0: I did. It was an incredibly powerful miniseries. It actually took me a little while to um, uh, get myself ready to watch it because of the personal connection that uh, my family has had to it, but uh, it it was incredibly well done. There were some inaccuracies, but uh, I thought overall uh, they deserve an A on that.
1: Yeah, I thought it was one of the best things I've seen in a long time.
0: Uh, Okay, when it comes to reading, um, I can't
1: see everything on your shelf there, but do you do you have time for fiction,
0: or are you all business, nonfiction all the time? M- mostly nonfiction. Um, I'll I'll recommend two books um, that have just come out recently. Uh, one is a great book by BBC journalist Gordon Carrera, The Russians Among Us, um, and it covers the um, Russian illegals that were arrested in 2010 and uh, goes into incredible detail. He does a great job in, of um, talking to the FBI agents that followed those people for a decade plus and the true damage that those people had done and the tradecraft that they used. Really fascinating book uh, uncovering um, um, that operation. And then one that was just recently released, uh, you see up there, Active Measures, by a good friend of mine, Thomas Ridd, that covers um, the whole influence um, uh, landscape um, that started in the early days of the Soviet Union, almost 100 years ago, um, and how the KGB at the time was um, using it um, to target the West um, all the way into modern times. Um, And he has had access to the archives of um, Eastern European intelligence agencies that opened up after the fall of the Berlin wall and uncovers a lot of amazing operations. Highly recommend those books. Great recommendations.
1: Do you have a favorite book of all time or a book that you like give to
0: other people? That's a tough question. I hate uh, that question. Sorry. I haven't written my own yet. So uh, stay, you gotta tuned. got to get on that, but uh, maybe one day. Well, just when Hollywood
1: dramatizes your life story, then, you know, you don't even need to write the book. You can just work do some input on the script. Um, okay. So if people want to follow you, uh, what you're doing with Silverado or what you're writing, what's the best way to do that?
0: Uh, follow me on Twitter right now. DL Parvich is the Twitter handle and uh, more, uh, more news on Silverado coming this fall. So stay tuned on that. Okay. Uh,
1: final question for you, Dimitri. Let's say you come to Green Bay, Wisconsin to visit me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, we are having a beer, uh, and a young high school kid from Northeast Wisconsin comes up to you and says, Dimitri, I heard you on the New Look podcast. I really just admire your career. I want to pursue a career in cybersecurity. Uh, and also at the intersection of cybersecurity and policy, what advice would you have for that young Northeast
0: Wisconsinite? First of all, follow your passions and go work at a startup. That was the best experience I've ever had. It's hard when you join a big company to, to make your mark on it and, and to advance through the ranks. Uh, but in a startup where everyone is sort of a chief cook and bottle washer, you get to try lots of different things. And uh, you know, I've seen people that I've hired into junior positions become VPs within a couple of years. Um, uh, you know, as a company grows, so that's some of the best ways that you can uh, advance your career, or you know, frankly, start your own company, and uh, then you're you're in charge and and running the show. Uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg did it in his uh, 20s uh, when he was uh, you know dropping out of college. Bill Gates, same thing. So uh, I don't advise dropping out of co- college, by the way. It's a great experience, and I think um, uh, uh, you know, f- few people make it once they drop out of college, like Zuckerberg and Gates. Uh, But after college, um, I think it's a phenomenal way to start your life and and learn a lot. Great advice uh, from
1: a very smart man. Uh, Dimitri, thanks for taking some time. Uh, Really appreciate it and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much.